Chapter Twenty Four of Babbitt. One, his visit to Paul was as unreal as his night of fog and questioning. Unseeing, he went through prison corridors, stinking of carbolic acid, to a room lined with pale yellow settees pierced in rosettes, like the shoe store benches he had known as a boy. The guard led Paul in. Above his uniform of linty gray, Paul's face was pale and without expression. He moved timorously in response to the guard's commands. He meekly pushed Babbitt's gifts of tobacco and magazines across the table to the guard for examination. He had nothing to say but, Oh, I'm getting used to it. And I'm working in the tailor shop. Stuff hurts my fingers. Babbitt knew that in this place of death Paul was already dead. And, as he pondered on the train home, something in his own self seemed to have died, a loyal and vigorous faith in the goodness of the world, a fear of public disfavor, a pride in success. He was glad that his wife was away. He admitted without justifying it. He did not care. 2. Her card read, Mrs. Daniel Judaic. Babbitt knew of her as the widow of a wholesale paper dealer. She must have been forty or forty-two, but he thought her younger when he saw her in the office that afternoon. She had come to inquire about renting an apartment, and he took her away from the unskilled girl accountant. He was nervously attracted by her smartness. She was a slender woman in a black Swiss frock, dotted with white, a cool-looking, graceful flock. A broad black hat shaded her face. Her eyes were lustrous. Her soft chin of an agreeable plumpness, and her cheeks an even rose. Babbitt wondered afterward if she was made up, but no man living knew less of such arts. She sat revolving her violet parasol. Her voice was appealing without being coy. I wonder if you can help me. Be delighted. I've looked everywhere, and I want a little flat, just a bedroom, or perhaps two, and sitting-room and kitchenette and bath. But I want one that really has some charm to it. Not these dingy places, or these new ones with terrible gaudy chandeliers. And I can't pay so dreadfully much. My name is Tannis Judique. I think maybe I've got just the thing for you. Would you like to chase around and look at it now? Yes, I have a couple of hours. In the new Cavendish apartments, Babbitt had a flat which he had been holding for Sidney Finkelstein, but at the thought of driving beside this agreeable woman, he threw over his friend Finkelstein, and, with a note of gallantry, proclaimed, I'll let you see what I can do. He dusted the seat of the car for her, and twice he risked death in showing off his driving. You do know how to handle a car, she said. He liked her voice. There was, he thought, music in it, and a hint of culture, not a bouncing giggle like Louetta Swanson's. He boasted, You know, there's a lot of these fellows that are so scared and drive so slow that they get in everybody's way. The safest driver is a fellow that knows how to handle his machine and yet isn't scared to speed up when it's necessary. Don't you think so? Oh, yes. I bet you drive like a whiz. Oh, no. I mean, not really. Of course, we had a car, I mean, before my husband passed on, and I used to make believe drive it, but I don't think any woman ever learns to drive like a man. 
Well, now, there's some mighty good women drivers. Of course, these women that try to imitate men and play golf and everything and ruin their complexions and spoil their hands. That's so. I never did like these mannish females. I mean, of course, I admire them dreadfully, and I feel so weak and useless beside them. Oh, rats, now. I bet you play the piano like a whiz. Oh, no. I mean, not really. Well, I'll bet you do. He glanced at her smooth hands, her diamond and ruby rings. She caught the glance, snuggled her hands together with a kittenish curving of slim white fingers which delighted him, and yearned. I do love to play. I mean, I like to drum on the piano, but I haven't had any real training. Mr. Judique used to say I would have been a good pianist if I had had any training, but then I guess he was just flattering me. I'll bet he wasn't. I bet you've got temperament. Oh, do you like music, Mr. Babbitt? You bet I do, only I don't know as I care so much for all this classical stuff. Oh, I do. I just love Chopin and all those. Do you, honest? Well, of course. I go to lots of these highbrow concerts, but I do like a good jazz orchestra right up on its toes with the fellows that plays the bass fiddle spinning around and beating it up with the bow. Well, I know. I do love good dance music. I love to dance. Don't you, Mr. Babbitt? Sure, you bet. Not that I'm very darn good at it, though. Oh, I'm sure you are. You ought to let me teach you. I can teach anybody to dance. Would you give me a lesson sometime? Indeed I would. Better be careful, or I'll be taking you up on that proposition. I'll be coming up to your flat and making you give me that lesson. Yes. She was not offended, but she was noncommittal. He warned himself, Heaven says now you chump, don't go make it a fool of yourself again. And with loftiness he discoursed, oh, I wish I could dance like some of those young fellows, but I'll tell you, I feel it's a man's place to take a full, you might say, creative share of the world's work, and mold conditions, and have something to show for his life. Don't you think so? Oh, I do. And so I have to sacrifice some of the things I might like to tackle, though I do, by golly, play about a good game of golf as the next fellow. Oh, I'm sure you do. Are you married? Uh, yeah. And, uh, of course, official duties. I'm the vice president of the Boosters Club, and I'm running one of the committees of the State Association of Real Estate Boards, and that makes a lot of work and responsibility, and practically no gratitude for it. Oh, I know. Public men never do get proper credit. They looked at each other with a high degree of mutual respect, and at the Cavendish apartments he helped her out in a courtly manner, waved his hand at the house as though he were presenting it to her, and ponderously ordered the elevator boy to hustle and get the keys. She stood close to him in the elevator, and he was stirred but cautious. It was a pretty flat of white woodwork and soft blue walls. Mrs. Judique gushed with pleasure as she agreed to take it, and as they walked down the hall to the elevator she touched his sleeve, caroling, Oh, I'm so glad I went to you. It's such a privilege to meet a man who really understands. Oh, the flats some people have showed me. He had a sharp, instinctive belief that he could put his arm around her. But he rebuked himself, and with excessive politeness he saw her to the car, drove her home, all the way back to his office he raged. 
glad I had some sense for once. Curse it, I wish I'd tried. She's a darling. Corker, regular charmer. Lovely eyes and darling lips and that trim waist. Never gets sloppy, like some women. No, no, no. She's a real cultured lady. One of the brightest little women I've met these many moons. Understands about the public topics and... But darn it, why didn't I try? Tannis. Three. He was harassed and puzzled by it, but he found that he was turning toward youth, as youth. The girl who especially disturbed him, though he had never spoken to her, was the last manicure girl on the right in the Pompeian barber shop. She was small, swift, black-haired, smiling. She was nineteen, perhaps, or twenty. She wore thin salmon-colored blouses which exhibited her shoulders and her black-ribbon camisoles. He went to the Pompeian for his fortnightly hair trim. As always, he felt disloyal at deserting his neighbor, the Reeves Building Barbershop. Then, for the first time, he overthrew his sense of guilt. Doggone it! I don't have to go here if I don't want to. I don't own the Reeves Building. These barbers got nothing on me. I'll doggone well get my hair cut where I doggone well want to. Don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm through standing by people unless I want to. Doesn't get you anywhere, and I'm through. The Pompeian barbershop was in the basement of the Hotel Thornley. Largest and most dynamically modern hotel in Zenith. Curving marble steps with a rail of polished brass led from the hotel lobby down to the barbershop. The interior was of black and white crimson tiles, with a sensational ceiling of burnished gold and a fountain in which a massive nymph forever emptied a scarlet cornucopia. Forty barbers and nine manicure girls worked desperately, and at the door six colored porters lurked to greet the customers, to care reverently for their hats and collars, to lead them to a place of waiting where, on a carpet like a tropic isle, in the stretch of white stone floor, were a dozen leather chairs and a table heaped with magazines. Babbitt's porter was an obsequious gray-haired negro, who did him an honor highly esteemed in the land of Zenith, greeted him by name. Yet Babbitt was unhappy. His bright, particular manicure girl was engaged. She was doing the nails of an overdressed man and giggling with him. Babbitt hated him. He thought of waiting, but to stop the powerful system of the Pompeian was inconceivable, and he was instantly wafted into a chair. About him was luxury, rich and delicate. The vaudrey was having a violet ray facial treatment. The next an oil shampoo. Boys wheeled about miraculous electrical massage machines. The barbers snatched steaming towels from a machine like a howitzer of polished nickel and disdainfully flung them away after a second's use. On the vast marble shelf facing the chairs were hundreds of tonics, amber and ruby and emerald, it was flattering to Babbitt to have two personal slaves at once, the barber and the bootblack. He would have been completely happy if he could have had the manicure girl. The barber snipped at his hair and asked his opinion of the Harve de Grace races, the baseball season, and Mayor Prout, the young Negro bootblack, hummed the camp-meeting blues and polished in rhythm to his tune, drawing the shiny shoe-rag so taut at each stroke that it snapped like a banjo-string. The barber was an excellent salesman. He made Babbitt feel rich and important by his manner of inquiring, "'What's your favorite tonic, sir?' 
have you time today for a facial massage your scalp is a little tight shall i give you a scalp massage babbitt's best thrill was the shampoo the barber made his hair creamy with thick soap then as babbitt bent over the bowl muffled in towels drenched it with hot water which prickled along his scalp and at last ran the water ice cold at the shock the sudden burning cold on his skull babbitt's heart thumped his chest heaved and his spine was an electric wire it was a sensation which broke the monotony of life he looked grandly about the shop as he sat up the barber obsequiously rubbed his wet hair and bound it in a towel as in a turban so that babbitt resembled a plump pink caliph in a ingenious and adjustable throne the barber begged in the manner of one who was a good fellow yet was overwhelmed by the splendors of the caliph how about a little eldorado oil rub sir very beneficial to the scalp sir didn't i give you one the last time he hadn't but babbitt agreed well all right with quaking eagerness he saw that his manicure girl was free i don't know i guess i'll have a manicure after all he droned and excitedly watched her coming dark-haired smiling tender little the manicuring would have to be finished at her table and he would be able to talk to her without the barber listening he waited contentedly not trying to peep at her while she filed his nails and the barber shaved him and smeared on his burning cheeks all the interesting mixtures which the pleasant minds of barbers have devised through the revolving ages when the barber was done and he sat opposite the girl at her table he admired the marble slab of it admired the sunken set bowl with its tiny silver taps and admired himself for being able to frequent so costly a place when she withdrew his wet hand from the bowl it was so sensitive from the warm soapy water that he was abnormally aware of the clasp of her firm little paw he delighted in the pinkness and glossiness of her nails her hands seemed to him more adorable than Mrs. Judique's, thin fingers and more elegant. He had a certain ecstasy in the pain when she gnawed at the cuticle of his nails with a sharp knife. He struggled not to look at the outline of her young bosom and her shoulders, the more apparent under a film of pink chiffon. He was conscious of her as an exquisite thing and when he tried to impress his personality on her he spoke as awkwardly as a country boy at his first party uh, it's kind of hot to be working today oh yes it is hot you cut your own nails last time didn't you yes guess i must have you always ought to get a manicure yes maybe that's so i uh... there's nothing looks so nice as nails that are looked after good i always think that's the best way to spot a real gent there was an auto salesman in here yesterday that claimed you could always tell a fellow's class by the car he drove but i says to him don't be silly and i says the weisenheimers grab a look at a fellow's nails when they want to tell if he's a tinhorn or a real gent yeah, maybe there's something to that of course that is with a pretty kitty like you a man can't help coming to get his mitts done yeah i may be a kid but i'm a wise bird and i know nice folks when i see em i can read character at a glance and i'd never talk so frank with a fellow if i couldn't see he was a nice fellow she smiled her eyes seemed to him as gentle as april pools with great seriousness he informed himself that there was some roughnecks who would think that just because a girl was a manicure girl and maybe not awful well educated 
she was no good but for him he was a democrat and understood people and he stood by the assertion that this was a fine girl a good girl but not too uncomfortably good he inquired in a voice quick with sympathy i suppose you have a lot of fellows who try to get fresh with you say gee i do say listen there's some of these cigar store sports that think because a girl's working in a barber shop they can get away with anything the things they say but believe me i know how to hop these birds i just give em the north and south and ask em say who do you think you're talking to and they fade away like love's young nightmare and oh don't you want a box of nail paste it will keep your nails as shiny as when first manicured harmless to apply and last for days sure i'll try some say say it's funny i've been coming in here ever since the shop opened and with arch surprise i don't believe i know your name don't you mine that's funny i don't know yours now you quit kidding me what's the nice little name well it ain't so darn nice it's kind of a kike but my folks see kikes my papa's papa was a nobleman in poland and there was a gentleman in here one day he was kind of a count or something kind of a no count i guess that's what you mean who's telling us stories marty and he said he knew my papa's folks in poland and they had a dandy big house right on the lake doubtfully maybe you don't believe it sure no really sure i do why not don't think i'm kidding you honey but every time i've noticed you i've said to myself that kid has blue blood in her veins didn't you honest honest i did well, well come on now uh, we're friends what's uh, darling's name ida putnik it ain't so much a name i always say to ma ma why didn't you name me dolores or something with some class in it well now i think it's a scrumptious name ida i bet i know your name well now not necessarily of course oh it isn't so specially well known aren't you mr soundheim that travels for the crackerjack kitchen cutlery company i am not i'm mr babbitt the real estate broker oh excuse me of course you mean here in zenith yep with the briskness of one whose feelings have been hurt oh sure i've read your ads they're swell mm, well you might have read about my speeches of course i have i don't get much time to read but i guess you think i'm an awfully silly little nit i think you're a little darling well there's one nice thing about this job it gives a girl a chance to meet some awfully nice gentlemen and improve her mind with conversation and you get so you can read a guy's character at the first glance look here ida please don't think i'm getting fresh he was hotly reflecting that it would be humiliating to be rejected by this child and dangerous to be accepted if he took her to dinner if he were seen by sensuous friends but he went on ardently don't think i'm getting fresh if i suggest it would be nice for us to go out and have a little dinner together some evening i don't know as i ought to but my gentleman friends always wanting me to take me out but maybe i could tonight four there was no reason he reassured himself why he shouldn't have a quiet dinner with a poor girl who would benefit by association with an educated and mature person like himself but lest someone see them and not understand he would take her to biddlemeyer's inn on the outskirts of the city 
they would have a pleasant drive this hot lonely evening and he might hold her hand no he wouldn't even do that ida was complacent and her bare shoulder showed it only too clearly but he'd be hanged if he'd make love to her merely because she expected it then his car broke down something had happened to the ignition and he had to have the car this evening furiously he tested the spark plugs stared at the commutator his angriest flower did not seem to stir the sulky car and in disgrace it was hauled off to a garage with a renewed thrill he thought of a taxicab there was something at once wealthy and interestingly wicked about a taxicab but when he met her on a corner two blocks from the hotel thornleigh she said a taxi well i thought you owned a car i do of course i do but it's out of commission tonight hmm. she remarked as one who had heard that tale before all the way out to biddlemeyer's inn he tried to talk as an old friend but he could not pierce the wall of her words with interminable indignation she narrated her retorts to the fresh-head barber and drastic things she would do to him if he persisted in saying that she was better at gassing than hoof-pairing at biddlemeyer's inn they were unable to get anything to drink the head waiter refused to understand who george f babbitt was they sat steaming before a vast mixed grill and made conversation about baseball when he tried to hold ida's hand she said with bright friendliness careful that french waiter is rubbering but they came out into a treacherous summer night the air lazy and a little moon above transfigured maples let's try some other place where we can get a drink and dance he demanded sure some other night but i promised ma i'd be home early tonight. rats too nice to go home i'd just love to but ma would give me fits he was trembling she was everything that was young and exquisite he put his arm about her she snuggled against his shoulder unafraid and he was triumphant then she ran down the steps of the inn singing come on georgie we'll have a nice drive and get cool it was a night of lovers all along the highway into zenith under the low and gentle moon motors were parked and dim figures were clasped in revelry he held out hungry hands to ida and when she patted them he was grateful there was no sense of struggle and transition he kissed her and simply she responded to his kiss they two behind the stolid back of the chauffeur her hat fell off and she broke from his embrace to reach for it oh let it be he implored huh my hat not a chance he waited till she had pinned it on then his arm sank about her she drew away from it and said with maternal soothing now don't be a silly boy mustn't make it a mamma scold just sit back dearie and see what a swell night it is if you're a good boy maybe i'll kiss you when we say good night now give me a cigarette he was solicitous about lighting her cigarette and inquiring as to her comfort then he sat as far from her as possible he was cold with failure no one could have told babbitt that he was a fool with more vigor precision and intelligence than he himself displayed he reflected that from the standpoint of reverend dr john jennison drew he was a wicked man and from the standpoint of miss ida putnick an old bore who had to be endured 
as the penalty attached to eating a large dinner. "'Dearie, you aren't going to get peevish, are you?' She spoke pertly. He wanted to spank her. He brooded. "'I don't have to take anything off this gutter pup, darn immigrant. Well, let's get it over as quick as we can, and sneak home and kick ourselves for the rest of the night.' He snorted. "'Huh? Me peevish? Why, you baby, why should I be peevish? Now listen, Ida, listen to Uncle George.' I want to put you wise about this scrapping with your head barber all the time. I've had a lot of experience with employees, and let me tell you, it doesn't pay to antagonize. At the drab wooden house in which she lived, he said goodnight briefly and amicably. But as the taxicab drove off, he was praying, Oh, my God! End of chapter 24